back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Peak Endurance Podcast with your host, Isabel Ross. As a personal trainer, accredited endurance coach, and now podcast host, Isabel is bringing you the best advice, tips, and tricks for your health and athletics. Having had raced all over the world, including participating in the notorious Barkley Marathons, she's now brought all of her knowledge and brought it back to you so you can now be an expert. So sit back, relax, and the knowledge you'll receive will have you off to the races. So you like running, but you're feeling pain or irritation and you can't enjoy it like you once did. Or worse, your performance is taking a big hit. Now you're reminiscing on the good times where the wind blew past your ears. Nature looked lovely as you passed it. What are you waiting for? Go and visit the specialist at Health and High Performance. With the latest in technology and a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can help you with all your running injury and performance needs. Let's get you back to doing something you love with the results you're capable of. Head over to healthhp.com.au slash run or you can find them on Instagram at health high performance health and high performance are located in Mount Albert Melbourne but are available for telehealth appointments not only Australia wide but also around the world so contact them now on their website to find out more Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. Episode 177 is an interview with Paul Watkins, also known as the Rogue Scholar. Paul describes himself as a mountain climber, ultra runner, adventurer, speaker, business owner, pharmacist, husband, father, nerd, and son. That's a lot of hats to be wearing. And Paul and I discuss what that all means, and also how he won the 2019 Arctic Ultra 614 kilometer race in the arctic obviously where it's pretty cold and his new book lost and find why we need adventure which i agree we all do now i really love working on this podcast and interviewing so many interesting people like paul i hope you enjoy listening and if you do could you do me a solid and subscribe rate and review it really does make a huge difference to me not only personally because you know we all like positive feedback, but it also helps the podcast audience grow and thus ensure I can keep getting amazing people to interview, just like Paul. Thank you. The link is in the show notes if you need to check that out. Now, I have my next Pole Skills Clinic on Sunday, the 6th of November, 2 to 3.30 p.m. in the Dandies. This course is invaluable for learning how to use your poles effectively when you are running and racing in the mountains and not just carrying them along for the ride. And to be honest, they're actually also great for flats. So go to the website to find out more. Also, don't forget to go to peakchocolate.com.au to get 15% of some yummy chocolate that is actually good for you. Well, as good as chocolate can get, which is pretty good. Enjoy my chat with Paul. It was so much fun. I did Isabel's Poles class because I was going to walk the 800km Camino de Santiago. Isabel was a great instructor, making sure that we as a group got all the information that we needed, but also that we had plenty of time one-on-one with her where she could give us personal instruction. I definitely came away feeling stronger, more balanced and faster. And with all the balance, I even, it was like having four legs instead of two, and even my pack felt lighter. All of the trail work that she did with us easily trans- transferred onto what I would need to do for the Camino as well. Since then I've done heaps of hiking and Isabel's advice still rank- rings true. Um, and I absolutely highly recommend Isabel's class to anyone who's interested in using poles. She's awesome. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Good afternoon, Isabel. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problems. I happened to see you on Instagram, Mm -hmm. and I was intrigued by your story. Um, Of course, on Instagram, you're the Rogue Scholar. Would you be able to just, you know, just to kick us off, explain what what that means? 
my when they look at me athletically, like I'm I'm really not an athlete. I'm a nerd. I always say to people, I'm I'm not an astronaut. I'm not an Olympian. I'm not an elite athlete in any way, shape, or form. I'm actually a nerd at heart. But I've gone and done stuff that nerds really have no logical right to go and do. So I often say that like I'm the nerdy guy that went off the rails and coloured way outside the lines and did things that nerds just should not be doing um, and hence the name. Fair enough. Now, um, you say, you know, you shouldn't be doing, but obviously, um, I mean, you describe yourself with lots of different um, things, you know, a mountaineer, an adventurer, a, a pharmacist. Um, persona, and that's what I was saying in the intro is you, you've got a lot of hats, but um, let's just delve into the ultra running for a second how did you get into running i kind of had two lifetimes in running like firstly it was back at high school and i got into cross country simply because i was too rubbish to do anything else like <laughs> i wasn't coordinated enough to do football i'm not tall enough to do basketball and i was just generally bad at sport um but the school i went to you had to do sport it was non-negotiable you train two nights a week and compete on the weekends oh. so i picked cross country running because you just got to stick one foot in front of the other and you don't have to get picked for a team. I'm like, great, this is my sport, fantastic. So I did that for a period of time. Fell out of it when I kind of got into uni and got into business um, and ended up quite unhealthy. And then kind of got back into it again when I tried to transition back into not being, you know, the guy who had the, the account of drive-through at KFC and trying to actually be healthy for my life. Um, and I got into mountaineering for a period of time and then got back into running as I was getting out of mountaineering. And that thing of going, you know, you get back into it, you do a 5K and then you do a 10 and you do a half. What's a marathon? What's an ultra feel like? And you just, and as you let those doors open and you kind of walk through to see what's out there, you suddenly allow yourself to go off and do really ridiculous things, which is generally what I've done. Yes, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. Now, and I was going to also talk about how you describe yourself as, as nerdy. Um, why do you consider yourself a nerd? I think just like classically trained, I'm a, I'm a pharmacist, you know, chemistry and biology and maths and, and uni, all that, at school, all those things made sense to me. Like it just it clicked and it worked. Um, you know, I, I wasn't out kicking the footy at lunchtime. I was with the nerdy kids playing Dungeons and Dragons under the veranda or whatever. And I, if I had a yearbook in year 12 and it had my photo, it would have had the caption, guy least likely to ever run anywhere or climb anything or do anything athletically. You know, I was debate club, theatre club, chess club, all those things. And I really only fell into ultra running and, and mountaineering and those kind of things as a vehicle to escape all the rest of my life. It was really to get out of being overworked and overstressed and all that stuff. I'm like, I have to get out. I'm going to explode. Like, this is ridiculous. And just went on a really basic trek or get on the treadmill and do a little run just as an escapism. Then you start to see how that makes you feel and, and what you might actually be capable of. And mm. that just started the journey and kind of and kind of went from there. So seeing as you're so good at maths and all that sort of stuff, are you able to, to do mental calculations late in a race like the rest of us can? <laughs> no, as a nerd, like it falls apart. I've stopped. I used to do that all the time. Like you'd be, you know, okay, I've got 30 Ks to go and it's this and that, I'll get into this time. And I'm always wrong. Like it's like low blood sugar and I <laughs> can't it. calculate it. And it's wrong every time. And, you know, oh, you know what it's like. You just, oh, I've, stopped doing, I've stopped doing maths in a race because I can't do it and it's always wrong. It's just like, You've got X kilometres to go, so continue to suffer until that is done, period. That's it, basically, isn't it? And, and it doesn't yeah. matter. Even if you get the maths right, you've still got to suffer for that amount of time, so just do it. The miles have to get done. You they see, most of them happy because they've still got to get done. Yep, exactly, exactly. They have no respect for maths, those miles. No, or me, or my legs or anything. <laughs> um, no, um, part of the reason I also was interested in the interview was you've won the, um, in 2019, the Arctic Ultra, 614 mm -hmm. kilometres. 383 um, miles for sure. Yeah. I don't know which is worse, which side is It was all bad. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, except for the last 200 metres, no <laughs> doubt. Um, so do you want to explain that to us? Um, like, mm -hmm. firstly, what inspired you to do that race coming like from Australia where there's like very little snow to train in Yep. and um, you know, and how you manage the training for something so cold. Yeah. 
So how I found that race was I'd, I'd had a, a fairly lengthy mountaineering background. I've been very fortunate. And I'd reached a point where I'd kind of gone, well, you know, you, when you're a single guy, your risk-reward profile is different. You can go out climbing ridiculous mountains and do stuff, and it doesn't really matter that much. But life goes on. You get married, you have kids, and you're, you're playing with chips and aren't your own all of a sudden. And I've reached a point where, you know, I was on big mountaineering expeditions, and when things went wrong, you know, people died. It wasn't, you know, we're just going to climb the hill out the back here. It's like it was serious stuff. I reached a point where, like, I think we need to hang the boots up for a while because we've, we've pushed the envelope as far as we're comfortable to push it. And I got back into running and kind of got back into the ultras and those kind of things. And then one day, like Facebook, just scrolling away, and I saw an article from, I think it was Outside Magazine, and they're like, top 10 toughest races in the world. I'm like, oh, I'm so reading this. Like, I'm going to read every word of this. It's a total clickbait. And I came across this race, 66-33 Arctic Ultra. And like within 30 seconds of reading it, I'm like nine pages deep on Google, backgrounding this race and who's done it, what's it like, and what goes on and all that kind of stuff. But what really attracted it to me was firstly where it was. Like at that stage in my mountaineering career, I climbed on all seven continents. I had a season in the Antarctic, like you name it. I've been everywhere, but I hadn't been inside the Arctic Circle. And this race, 90% or 95% of it's inside the Arctic Circle. So that was really a, we can tick that box. And just the ridiculousness of it, like 600 plus kilometres. Um, it had an attrition rate of 80%. Wow. Um, they had the first seven years, only 11 people got to the finish line. Like it just, if you're on the start line, there's five of you, four of you aren't getting anywhere. Like it's, you're not going to make it. So just the, the sheer concept of going and attempting something like that really appealed to me. Um, so I read the article, spoke to my wife and then signed up. I'm like, here's my, take my money. I want to go do this. Um, and that was 2016 to go and do the race in 2017. Um wow. And I try, I did all the right things, like, you know, trained for a full year, like I had great cold weather experience. Like on paper, I was a great candidate. Like I should have all the boxes ticked for the ability to do this. And then you go there and your experience is absolutely and completely worlds apart from, from what you're expecting. Like it's okay to read on paper that it's going to be minus 30 or minus 40. And I've, I've spent time in minus 40. Yeah. But when you're in that and you're racing, and I should clarify, this is not a stage race. This is a single stage race. Like they put you on the start line. They point you north and they go, three, two, one, go. You've got 200 hours plus and you've got 600 kilometres to go. See at the end if you make it. Bye-bye. No support crew. You get a couple of drop bags. There's a few checkpoints. And the checkpoints, they offer shelter from the wind and hot water if the winter mix fuel didn't freeze and we can't give you hot water, <laughs> that's it. And the, the shelter from the wind might be a school hall. It might be a trailer, might be not much at all. And that's it. And if you want to sleep, you sleep in the snow. If you want to eat, you eat whenever you want and away you go. So I went out and headed out and I, I made it halfway, about 250 plus kilometres into this race in 2017. And I had made absolutely every mistake in the book. Like you name the mistake, I made it. Um, and I reached that point and I was, I was frozen, I was starving, I was hallucinating, I had slept, everything was wrong. Most of the race had already been knocked out by that stage anyway. We started with 25 and we're already down to about six or seven by that stage. Wow. And I, I had to pull the pin. Like I was going to die out there. There was just no point going any further. Like I did the maths. There's no way I can make it to the finish line in time. The cutoff is really hard. Like they're like, yeah. we don't care if you're 10 metres from the finish line. The clock hits zero, DNF goodbye. Um, I just knew that it was just going to end really badly for me. So I'm like, it's, I, I couldn't. I rang my wife on the sat phone, bawled my eyes out. I can't do it. I'll let you down. I'll let the kids down. It's a disaster. She's like, come home. Like, it's done. It's okay. You gave it your best shot. You found your limit. Come home. And I did, and I came home. And then you come home with your, your little battered body and your bruised little ego, and you have to kind of piece it all back together. And I often talk to people like this. It's like, you, you reach that point where you're like, well, that's a chapter. And you can close a book and call it done. Or you can say, you know what? I came away with that with a failure. Like it was a DNF. Yeah. But I have new tools. I got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge by going out there and just screwing it up completely. Yeah. So I had that knowledge and that experience now. So I took that and said, you know what? I want to take those tools and I want to write another chapter. And so sat back, watched the race in 2018 and then signed up to go back and re-race it in 2019, um, which is obviously the race which went 
vastly different for me because this time yeah. I went with that knowledge and experience um, and stood on the start line of very different human beings. So that's how I ended up standing at the start line of a 614-kilometre race in the Arctic Circle. So, do you, you know, you went from a DNF to a, to a win. <clears throat> do you think that DNF gave you more motivation? I think it did. I think it gave me a, a lot of knowledge, as I said, about what to do differently, even from a training standpoint. Like in for the 2017 race, I trained really hard, but I trained for what I expected. Yeah. And then you turn up and encounter something entirely different. Whereas the 2019 race, I trained for everything. I just trained so that my toolkit was deep. And I'm like, when I go there, I don't care what they throw at me. I'll just reach in the toolkit and pull out the tool and we'll be good. Um, like nights, nights are horrendous. Like it sounds romantic on paper. Mm-hmm. You're in the Arctic Circle, the Northern Lights are out. You're out there on your own. It sounds magnificent. Until you realise that it's minus 40 and everything around you is trying to kill you and it's horrific and your entire world is just the zone of your little headlamp, which is shutting down because it's freezing. So I trained really hard at nights to make nights my happy place when I went back in 2019. So you just find all those gaps and you fill them and you make sure that toolkit is deep and broad and then you just go back and tackle the race with a very different mindset. I went with a mindset in 2019 that my goal was to finish. And I didn't care if I was dead last. I had no illusion that I'd be on the podium. I'm just like, I want to get there. And I want to finish it. Like four out of five people don't see the finish line. So if you can get there and get to the end, that's a, that's tick. That's gold medal in, in what I was hoping to achieve. So I stood in the start line dead last. I put myself right at the back on purpose going, you guys at the front are all going to run off and, and do your winning thing. And that's great. <laughs> I'm just here to execute my race plan and finish it. I just want to prove that I can go the distance. And that was really the mentality I had until about kind of 60% of the way through the race when, when things changed and kind of some opportunities opened up for me to have a different story. But I think sometimes going in um, with that kind of a strategy means there's less pressure on yourself mm. and you can just, like you say, do your own race mm. and that, Certainly for me, that's when I've had my most successful races. Yeah. Um, and you see it as an adventure and a challenge rather than as a, you know, a threat kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so just out of interest, before you attempted this race, what was the furthest race you'd ever done or run? Uh, I think probably like Surf Coast Century, like 100 Ks. Wow. That was about it. Like mountaineering expeditions, like I'd spent, you know, a month, six weeks out dragging sleds and backpacks up huge mountains and stuff. Yeah. But that's kind of a different yeah like the environment's similar it's got cold but it's a different way of moving like it's a very siege mentality like we're moving from camp to camp and yeah. part and part and that kind of stuff but in terms of just you know throw the vest on and, and go young man it was i think surf coast so probably i hadn't even done 100 mile at that stage it was i think wow. we did a couple of hundred k's and that was about it so wow didn't you kind of go gee that's a lot more kilometers it's just you just you're not going to run it because i mean you're you're dragging a sled like you've got to you've got to be completely self-sufficient there's no support crews you don't get to the aid station and they're handing out gels it's like you have got everything you need to survive in that environment and they make it quite clear like you've got a spot device you know little garments and stuff we can you know come and save me but they're like it could be quite a while before we get there. Like it could be a day before we can get to you and get you out of whatever you've got yourself into. Um, so I, everybody, all the contestants had a sled. So you had a, a sled that you dragged, which had about 20, 22 kilos fully loaded. That was my, that's as low as I could get it um, with, you know, safety gear, stuff, clothes for the weather, bivy bag to sleep in, food, water, stove to get yourself out of trouble if you had to melt yeah. snow or ice or that kind of stuff. So in your head, it's like, oh, you've got all these hours and you don't have to run. You just have to move quickly. Like, how hard can that be? <laughs> but then you realise that you do the maths because you're a nerd. And you go, I only have to do like four or five kilometres an hour. That's it's like walking. But then you realise that you have to do that, you know, through ice and snow with the sled. And it's not each hour. It's every hour of the day. You have to do that 24 hours a day, oh, wow. yeah, seven yeah. days a week for more than a week to make it to get to the finish line and then the maths gets different because it's like well it's not four kilometers an hour it's four kilometers an hour average oh you wanted to sleep for an hour today well now you've got to back that in and you kind of all of a sudden the maths gets really different oh you didn't realize that the wind would be 100 kilometers an hour and that moving is actually really really hard well the maths changes again so it's that that thing of going on paper doesn't actually sound that bad but when you get there it's actually really bad so can 
can I ask, like, if you had to be self-sufficient, how did your, um, like, head torch, how could you recharge that? What did you have to recharge it? You use lithium batteries for starters because they handle the cold a lot better. Yeah. And you take a lot of batteries. So you would have and just simple tricks. Like, you'd have to, you couldn't have, like, you know, your um, rechargeable ones, like, you know, your head torches where you can plug them into your USB and charge them up because they just die in an hour in the cold. Mm. So you'd have your head torch with a battery pack and the battery pack would go in the armpit or it'd go down your pants or wherever is warm enough on your body yeah. to extract the longest life out of the batteries. And you had enough batteries to get you to your next drop bag. So you had a drop bag at about 200 kilometres and one at about 480, 500 kilometres. So you would have extra batteries in there and whatever else you needed. So it was a case of going, okay, it's going to be dark for about 12 to 13 hours a day. How many batteries do I reckon I'll go through? Have enough spares? And there's a lot of, I enjoy the logistics of planning that out. How much food do I need? How much water do I need to make enough freeze drives to eat enough calories to get to the checkpoint, blah, blah, blah. So I enjoyed that kind of, I nerded out on that kind of stuff. So you had to bring your own water? Yeah. So you had to either bring your own water or the ability to make your own water. Yeah. So as part of your mandatory gear, you had to have a stove where you could melt the ice or snow. Um, most of us, in my mind, using the stove was just a disaster scenario because you had to stop. As soon as you stop, you're getting really cold and yeah. you've got to light it. Lighting, it's a nightmare because everything's frozen. Like I watched some of the athletes actually put fire lighters around the little gas canister and light the fire lighters to warm the canister enough to get the gas to move just up enough so you could light the damn thing to wow. start. Like it was horrible. So I carried enough thermoses with enough water and had a race vest on that I would fill at each checkpoint. So you fill your thermoses, put boiling hot water in your race vest because then it was against you and kept you warm, put like nine layers over that. But then I had enough water that would get me through to the next checkpoint. And then you reload and repeat the process and, and do it all over again. Sounds like so much fun. It um... does, doesn't it? <laughs> Why wouldn't you go? I know. I was just thinking I'm just dying to go. Yeah. Sign up now. Yeah. I mean, I've run in like negative 20 degrees when I was living in Canada, but I, I found I mean, like, you know, my eye, yeah, my eyelashes got frozen. I couldn't open my eyes. Were yeah. you having to wear goggles and that sort of stuff? Yeah. How's this for funny? So the 2017 race, one of the things I didn't realise is when you cover up with a buff and all those kind of things, if you wear glasses, your glasses fog up. Yes. And then the fog actually would freeze. So you'd have like little tiny icicles. So I couldn't see. And at night it was really bad. And it got to the point where I gave up. So I took my glasses off because it was so pointless. So yes. I'm now, you know, wandering around in the Yukon trying to figure out where I'm going with like short-sighted me, can't see a thing at night, trying to figure out what it is a disaster. So 2019, I learned I had ski goggles and I had prescription lenses shoved in behind the screen of the goggles. So they were away from a face enough that they didn't fog up, but I could see. So I had these ski goggles on like 24 hours a day um, just so I could actually see, but not fog up and not have all those kind of issues. And what about, you talked about having a buff, but like mm. I also find in that kind of cold that you know, the moisture coming out of your mouth would freeze and then I'd be like, oh, I can't breathe. What yep. did you do to counter it? And then you, you pull it off and then it's like, no, I can't breathe again because it's so cold. What did you do? Uh, well, see, I have an advantage over you in that I can grow a beard. So you get a beard on and then it just pushes the, like I had a big bushy ah. beard up and it just pushes a buff off enough. It still freezes, but even then you have a little bit of a gap. Ah. So that was good. Or you take the buff off and then you just end up with a coating of ice anyway. So... Yeah. It was one of those things of going, you just have enough buffs knowing that they're all going to freeze and you'll go through a couple of day and then you'll just shove them down your top and defrost them and put them back on again and, you know, juggle it as best you can. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting though. But okay, yeah, I, I never thought of the beard, but um, I'll work on you it. You have experience in Canada. You can appreciate what some of these issues are like. You've yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, not quite as bad. And I had the option just to go home. <laughs> yeah, this is terrible. I'm going inside. <laughs> you know, like when I, when my eyelashes stuck together and I couldn't see anymore, that's when I decided to go home. So yeah. That's the warning sign. <laughs> yeah, generally. Um, so like... How what what sort of food did you have? Because if you weren't using the stove too much, mm. because obviously it's a hassle, mm. what did you eat? You basically did you have to eat bars and horrible food like that the whole time? Yes. So what I learned the first time is that like 2017, like I took cliff bars and all those kind of things, which oh, in theory is really be good. like a rock. 
yeah, I got them out like they're in your bag and the bag's in your sled and your sled's attached to you and you're outside and it's minus 40. So you get your cliff bar out. It's like a house brick. Like you can't oh, eat it. Right now. So the first attempt I did, I, I starved because I couldn't eat. I didn't have the right food. I just prepared it poorly. I didn't understand the mechanics of how it would work. Um, and I literally, I dropped a kilo a day, like racing wow. that thing. I just, even though I was trying to, and it was just a disaster. So 2019, when I went back, I had similar food, but what I did is, before the race, I sat in my hotel room for a whole day, went out, bought all my food, figured out the calories in everything, had a little pocket knife, cut everything up, and then yeah. bagged it into um, thousand calorie bags of like trail homemade trail mix. And then I had what I called hots, so like hot soup, like you know, cup of soup, cup of noodles, and then dehydrated meals. And the plan was to eat six thousand calories a day. So you just keep tipping food in, like yeah. you just it's an incinerator you just keep pouring it in um and i ate i got close to six thousand calories a day for the eight days that i raced and i still dropped 10 kilos from starting wow. under finish line like oh, it didn't shit. matter how much you poured in you just yeah. incinerated the calories just to keep warm it wasn't a, just you know athletically moving it was just to keep warm and keep moving kind yeah. of 22 and a half 23 hours a day yeah. you just chew through calories but you look at it as fuel i mean you know what it's like you just it's not food. Yeah. It's just fuel. No one cares whether you like it. You just have to eat it. So shovel it in and keep shoveling it in until you hate it and then shovel more in. Um, and that's what you do. That, that would be, I would find that so hard because, um, because yeah, you do start to hate it. Yeah. And you didn't yeah. get in like, you didn't get sick in the tummy or anything like that. No, thankfully I'm fairly robust with that. That wasn't too bad. And you kind of, you start having a macabre sense of humor about it. Like, yeah. you know, I'd have the freeze drives that were like chocolate pudding dessert serves for people. You know, like, no, it doesn't. This is a single serve, my friend. And yeah. you just inhale it and have a laugh about it and move on. And, you know, and you so you did um, the, the cooker sometimes or was that at the, the thermos water? I'd just have a thermos and if the water was warm enough in that, pour it into your freeze drive, mix it walk yeah. along eat it i i train myself to eat on the move so i never yeah. stopped for a meal i'm just like you can okay. prep a food eat it clean put it all away keep like never break stride because it saves you an enormous amount of time so i would just eat trail mix but you know a cup of soup then some noodles then a freeze-dried repeat process uh -huh. and just do that every hour like just we're gonna have something and we're gonna have something we're gonna have something we just repeat 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 Wow, so basically you're just walking and eating. That's pretty much all you did. That's all I did. You'd walk, you'd eat, you'd attend to the calls of nature that became the problem because you're eating and drinking of so course. much. Yes. And then you just, and it really was about, um, the, the race organizer said it really well. I said, this isn't a race where you flex your muscles. This isn't about who the fastest is. This is who can continue to make really well-disciplined, smart decisions yeah. for longer than anybody else. And that's all it boiled down to. Um, and he was right. It really was a case of going when you're completely and utterly spent and you're getting towards the end where it's just you really all the engine lights are on and everything's falling apart. Who can keep making really good decisions and who can stay really disciplined in the execution of their race strategy in terms of their sleep and eating and drinking and all that and not get frostbite and freeze to death? They're going to end up at the front of the field because just sheer weight of attrition will wipe everyone else out. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously it gets harder and harder to make those good decisions. So in regards to sleep, <clears throat> how much did you sleep? So I had a really, first time I attempted the race, I had no structure at all. It was a disaster zone because I was, didn't eat. I got slow because you're slow. You can't take the time to sleep. So you don't sleep. So then you make stupid decisions and you go down the rabbit hole. 2019, I had a really clear plan. So I would bivy. So I just had a sleeping bag in a little bivy bag with a little fold-out mat underneath it. And you literally just pull over on the side of the trail, throw it in the snow and get in it. And yeah. I would sleep for about 20 minutes mid-morning and then about 20 minutes mid-afternoon. I'd get as deep into the night as I could and I'd take 40, maybe 60 minutes at night and then just repeat cycle. And I held that for as long as I could. And I got through until about the last night or two where you just... It was just sheer survival mode. It was just you bivy for 15 minutes as often as you have to to, to to stay upright and move a little bit further. So I think by the end of it, I raced for 195 hours in the end straight. Um, and I got 15 hours of sleep, give or take. So that was about eight days with about 15 hours of sleep by the time I came wow. across the finish line. And I was a mess. Hallucinations were rampant. I just, you have no idea what's real and what's not. No. Yeah, None. I can imagine. Wow. 
And and when you would hop into the bivy, would, was it like, were you warm enough? No, but you weren't in there for that long. So it doesn't really matter. Like you just, and you're so exhausted. At first I was worried, you know, it's like you run an ultra, like you don't sleep that night because your no. body's just wired. But this, you were so exhausted. Like I had times where I got on my bivy bag and I'd have my phone and I'd set the alarm for 20 minutes and my finger would hit the button to start the timer. And the timer would go off and I'd wake up because the 20 minutes had gone, but my finger was still on the phone. Be like, wow. oh, damn it. It's time to get up. <laughs> oh you haven't even moved. Like you're still holding the phone in front of your face. Oh and like, oh, okay, get up. But that was the discipline. You had to be up. The minute the alarm went off, I always did 90 seconds. You're up, bivy yeah. pack, boots on, sled on, harness on, and you're moving. As yeah, if you it's can't not think seconds, about it. Five yeah. hours. So yeah. it's got to be 90 seconds. So that was the, wow. the discipline of you've got to keep moving, you've got to keep the pace. I mean, I guess that's partly survival as well, isn't it? It's just damn cold. Like it's minus yeah. 40. You don't want to get it. Like you get your shoes on fast because it's real yeah. cold. I can Ooh. imagine. Oh, and, and being in that environment for 195 hours is, um, yeah, very extreme. It's the day and night thing. The fact that there's no stages, it's just, it's yeah. go, see at the end. Like the, Martin, the race director, said one of three things will happen when we say go. Like you'll either run out of time, you'll run out of land. Like when you run out of Canada, stop. Or you'll just run out of will. One of those three things will happen. And he said for most of you will run out of will. A few of you will run out of time. And, you know, one or two of you will run out of land and you'll finish. And that's it. How many people finished the year you won it? Five, I think, finished it. We started with about 25, 26, I think, that year, which is – so that's a pretty good finish rate. Like, they've had years yeah. when no one finishes at all. Um, wow. They've had multiple – so they've run it for 10 years now, 11 years, and there's only been seven winners because wow. there's been so many years where just no one made it to the finish line at all. Um, and they had a year where a Romanian guy won it and then came back the next year and won it again because he wanted to set the course record. So they've had a yeah. year where they've had the same guy win it twice. Um yeah. But uh, yeah. And, um, so. Were there any women? Yes. The course record, the original course record is held by a woman. Okay. Um, Mimi Anderson from the UK. So she's amazing. She was, yeah. So Mimi was on the support crew, like the medic crew the year that I won. She's amazing. Oh, so yeah. she holds the course record for the original long course. The course used to be 580 kilometers, it's now 614. Oh, um, okay. But she holds the record for that. And no one's come within a bull's roar of that ever. Like she will never be beaten on that. Wow. Um, but for the longer, new, longer course, it's held by a Romanian. Um, but, yes, there were uh, a couple of women and um, Hayley from the UK was one of the finishers in 2019 oh, with me. Cool. So, um, yes, but, uh, yes, the record is held by a woman. Oh, we're never beating it ever. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So all those women listeners, off you go. Um, <laughs> I think I'll give it a miss. <laughs> you can't just watch it from home. It's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Why is it called 6633? It's the line of latitude for the Arctic Circle. Um, so you cross, you get 30 k's in and you there's a little checkpoint there at the line of the Arctic Circle and then you spend the next 580 plus inside the Arctic Circle. Okay. Of course. I should have known that, shouldn't I, really? No one knows that <laughs> ever. That's, okay, that's like, all right. I don't feel so like No one's ever heard of this race. Like, I don't, I didn't yeah. do it because I'm like, oh, people will go, that's amazing. It's like, it's not UTMB. Like, no one's no. heard of it ever <laughs> and probably never will. But it's like, that's not why I did it. That's, no, that's well, you know, I was just watching a video about the UTMB last night mm. and it was like, even like 20 kilometres in, people were still having to wait for bottlenecks of people. I'm guessing you didn't have that happen. <laughs> No, well, that's that's the interesting part of it too that I really liked and it freaked some people out, but I like the fact that yes. they said within the first few hours, you'll see the person in front of you and you'll see the person behind you. By the end of the first day, you won't see the person in front of you and you won't see the person behind you and you may not see a human being for days wow. and you need to be okay with that. Yes. Um, and for the first portion, of the, about the first third of the race, no music. You can't put your headphones in and listen to your favourite tunes or audio book or anything because we're on the Dempster Highway for the first portion. So uh, like there's still trucks here. So you need uh, to be aware of your surroundings. So they said if we drive past in the medic crew and you've got an earbud in, DNF, you're out straight away. So you can have music once you get off the Dempster onto the Peel River. So we're on a frozen river for hundreds of kilometres. That's fine. But when you're on anything that may have traffic on it, I mean, there was hardly any, but yeah. no music because you must be aware of your surroundings. So you were really, really, really alone. alone and, um, so did you listen to music much? Not really because... <laughs> I got to Fort McPherson, which is the point where we transitioned from the Dempster Highway onto the Peel River. And I went to get my 
earbuds out. So of course you can't use like rechargeables. You've got to have the corded ones. So as I pulled them out of my bag, my sled bag, they caught on the zip and it just ripped them to shreds. Oh just, no. Just, <laughs> I had non-functioning headphones. So at one point, I think the race photographer drove past me. She's like, what are you doing? I had my ski goggles on with my phone jammed up in it. Just, <laughs> just to listen to anything that wasn't my own breathing for like five minutes. So I got my phone just jammed up against me with a beanie over the top. And I'm trying to listen to just anything that I had saved yeah. on my phone in a bid to not go completely insane. So yes, you can, but I know I didn't. <laughs> Oh, wow. So you've got to really be okay with being in your own head. Yeah, a lot, like really in your own head for like 23 hours a day, day after day after day, which is part of the reason I did it. Like I yeah. really I found that with mountaineering too, and, and, and you've probably experienced with ultra running. Like it's the only way I've found that you can just dig all the way to the bottom of the well and find what's there. Like you, yes. you have to go through that, all those stages of, you know, you hear all the, the things, you know, you know, when you think you're finished, you're only 40% of the way or whatever. It's like, well, it's true. But then when you dig the extra 40%, when you dig all the way to the bottom, what do we find? And that's why I like these kind of events because you really do just get all the way to the bottom of the well and see what's there. So I quite like that, that kind of decompressing and you take your mental inbox back to zero and just like I got home from that race and I said to my wife, I said, why is everybody yelling? Like the world is so, why are you all yelling? You're all so loud. And she's like, we're just talking normally. I'm like, no, the whole yeah. world is too loud. What did you do while I was gone? Like, you don't realize how much you've turned the dial down until you have a chance to actually turn it all that way down. Yeah, I was going to say coming home would be hard and having to readjust because that's a, a large amount of time to just be on your own. And then you'd have to readjust to communicating even with other people. You know, yeah. yeah, you're expected to shower every day and sleep normally yeah. at night. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> That's do that? far too much work. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, speaking of showering and, and clothes and that, so what did you wear? Um, I took as little as possible mm. while still having enough that you could deal with whatever happened. Like, I think the race record, like the worst temperature they've had during the race is about minus 56. And I think the the temperature record for that trail, but not while the race is on, like minus seventy with wind chill. Like it, you've got to be prepared for the absolute worst. Yeah. Um, like we go over. I mean, you may be aware we go over um, Wrights Pass over the Richardson Mountain Range. We go through Hurricane Alley. Like you get absolutely oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. slammed out there. Yeah. So you would have like layers upon layers. You have a light thermal, medium weight, heavy weight, big jackets. Like pants on. I was just in normal trail shoes. Like I had normal trail shoes okay. on, just with a couple of pairs of socks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you might put spikes on them occasionally, depending on the terrain and that kind of stuff. Um, lots of beanies and buffs. Um, and then you just kind of, you, you're making those judgment calls before you go, how many pairs of jocks do we really need? Like, how many <laughs> layers can I get away with? Like, yeah. so you really, because you've got to carry it, you, you've got to have it with yes. you. So everything adds up. So it really was a case of going, you know what? I think two pairs of boxes is enough for a week. We yeah. can deal with that. Yeah. No when one's really, there. When you're just with yourself, it doesn't really matter, does yeah. it? And because it's so cold, you're not like you can't sweat. No. Sweating is a real risk. I mean, you, yes, that's you right. sweat and it freezes, you're shot. You're absolutely gone. Mm. So you're not kind of not that race where you're like you're just drenched every time you come into a checkpoint or anything like that. Mm. So there's some different mechanics you kind of got to adjust and, and handle as you go. So how did you prepare for the cold? Because well, you're from Victoria, right? Yeah. And still not that cold. No, I mean it's crap weather. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not the right kind of cold. No, I, I got a mate who runs a restaurant. And he's like, I can lock in the meat freezer at night if you I want. I was going to ask if you did something that. like that. <laughs> no, um, I did the Falls Creek Marathon the one year that yeah. that Sean ran it. I, I went up and did that because I thought that'd be a good idea. But other than that, like you just can't get in the cold. So. I really worked on, I'll lean into my mountaineering experience of being in cold places and knowing how I operate, what are the warning signs, how do you deal with things when they go wrong yeah. and just try and make really smart decisions. So I went with the theory going, if you athletically prepare as well as you can and mentally prepare as well as you can and emotionally prepare as well as you can, give yourself the best chance to make good choices when things go wrong. So when it's frozen, your hands have got issues, your feet have got issues or whatever, 
if everything else is okay, you've got the mental bandwidth to deal with it rather than going, oh, have you spent enough time in freezing cold baths yeah. or anything like that? It's like, it's going to be cold and it's going to suck anyway. Whether you spend, yeah. whether you had a cold shower every day or not, it's still cold when you get there and you're going to have to deal with it. So yeah. just focus on having the tools to allow you to deal with it um, and then you can go from there. Yeah, because I guess spending an hour or two in the cold is not really going to acclimatise you for 24-7 no. in the cold. No. No. Yeah, so you save yourself the grief of the cold baths yes. and just get athletically and mentally prepared and know yes. how to deal with things when they go wrong. That experience is helpful, knowing what to do when, you know, but one night where I was travelling with another Aussie in 2017 and, and one of the wheels of his sled just snapped because it's oh. freezing cold, like the aluminium rods just break yeah. so I'm like it's now it's like two o'clock in the morning and we're on the trail of you know, like a leatherman and a couple of um ties trying to fix his sled mm. and that kind of stuff you know like you can't take your gloves off because your fingers are going to freeze and like how do you you've got to know how to manage some of this stuff yeah. as you go so it's um it's really about just how good a toolkit have i got and then we just deal with whatever gets hurled at us along the way did you do any particular mental strengthening work before you went away? Kind of did two things. One is that because I'm a dad, like I've got young kids, I tried to move all my training as much as I could into my time, not their time, which meant yeah. I did a lot at night um, because A, it was good training for nights and yeah. B, I felt that I was taking into my time up there. So you, mentally that was really good to go, you know, you have a long day, your kids get yeah. in bed, catch up with your wife and it's nine o'clock at night and we're going to head out, goodbye, and I'll be back in the morning and that kind of stuff. So that was good mentally um, to kind of handle those things. I had another thing and I've totally forgotten what the other prep was. Um, oh, yeah, breath work. So I spent a fair bit of time just kind of understanding how breath work could alter your emotional state and just your physiology. So how can I upregulate and downregulate? If I need to sleep and I'm peaking, how can I do that? If I've got to really turn the dial up because something's happening, how can I do that? So really just getting some you know, tricks in the bag of, mm how can I manage that when things aren't going the way I need them to or what have you and I've got to adjust the thermostat internally how do I do that okay now I know how to do that cool I can do that and use that tool if I need to yeah yeah um I mean I'm I'm a big um believer in the breath work too and, and breathing techniques um but with when you were running all night for your training like when did you sleep well I would normally just grab a couple of hours I get home like when it got close to the race I would get home and bivy just outside or in the back paddock or something. get a couple of hours. I mean, neighbours are like, I mean, there's that weirdo again. <laughs> yeah, even the neighbours are like, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> I like you'd come in and the kids would be getting up and you'd just be coming in and you'd done a long haul. And then like, you don't do that too often. There's no point in annihilating yourself, but you need to do it enough that you under your body understands that yeah. we're going to be tired, but we're going to be okay. Um, yeah. Particularly in a race at length, like you get to a point where, Coffee is a waste of time. Like yes. all you're doing is jacking your heart rate up and worsening your hallucinations. Like you just don't bother. So you just have to be able to function really, really tired um, and get that autopilot of the legs don't stop moving no matter what. Um, so you just, you'd adjust. Yeah, that balance of I need to push the envelope, but I need to recover, but I need to push the envelope and I need to yeah. recover and just making sure you, you thread the needle as best you can to turn up in the best shape that you can. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough line to 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 walk. That one. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah. you never know if it's right until it's over. Right. That's it. That's it. And um, what did your kids think of it all? Their kids are great levelers. Like when I come back in 2019, so at that stage, my eldest was four and her youngest was two. And like I came home and like I hadn't seen them for a couple of weeks. Like you've won this race, all that kind of jazz, and you know, like you. you flown into Melbourne, it's a three-hour drive home, and I finally get home. I'm like, boys, I'm home. And they're like, my dad. You know, like, is that it? Like, like, they're just like, uh, did you not notice my absence? Like, seriously. <laughs> like, they, they were quite young. They understand that dad did a big snow race and that kind mm. of stuff, and, you know, that's cool. But you get home, and they just bring you straight back to earth, and they just deflate your ego and go, right, that's great. We're hungry. What do we get? It's like, You're like, I'll tell you about hunger. <laughs> look, yeah. I'll tell you about cold sunshine. Don't you tell me it's too cold. Put your shoes on. Um, so it's, yeah, look, it's, they were young and it was great. So yeah, just wait till they're teenagers. They'll care even less. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's really helping me. <laughs> 
Um, and what was your recovery like after such a grueling event, especially because you lost so much weight? Yeah, long. And the other thing that happened was because you're dragging a sledge, you've got a full harness on. So you've just got that little bit of forward flexion ah. 23 hours a day. Yeah. It got to the point where eventually the nerve, like the muscles along the spine and everything, just they, they tighten up, tighten up, tighten up. And eventually ah. got so tight, it, it blocked nerve transmission. So by the last day, I couldn't feel anything from kind of the top of the back of my neck to my butt. Like everything was just, you know, when you get like pins and needles when it's really yes, numb. Yes. The whole thing was numb. And I said to wow. one of the medics, I'm like, is this okay? Am I going to die? Like what, what's going on here? And he's like, totally normal. Three months, you'll be 100% fine. Oh, God. It was six months. Like it was literally six months before I had full feeling and everything and everything functioned really well again. Um, wow. And even now, if I get really tired, um, parts of my back, the, the nerves will spark off and do weird things. Um yeah. But like your body heals, like, you know, yeah. you take a couple of weeks off, you eat everything you can lay your hands on and then you get back into walking and get on the bike and just slowly yeah. kind of get back into things. But biochemically, like they, the, the medic said to us, look, you're going to think you're going to go to bed tomorrow and sleep for like 20 hours. Like you're not. It'll be at least a week before you have a full night's sleep. Mm. And they were right. It was eight days before I had a full night's sleep. Why? Your body, Why can't you sleep? Just biochemically, you're so out of whack. Like you yeah. every every system is completely screwed up. They're like, you just, you won't be able to sleep properly because your system is completely off tap. Um, and they were right. Like you get, I would wake up and think I'm still in the race. I'm trying to get out of bed and I'm, I'm trying to put clothes on and run and get out and move. And, oh, and just, like you just mentally couldn't do it. And just, it did. It took about a week for your biochemistry to figure itself out and get back to some equilibrium to allow you to unwind and actually go to sleep. Like it just, yeah. it just took that long. Yeah, geez. I mean, that's intense isn't it <laughs> it's a little weird like the yeah. scientists in me really enjoyed it like during the race i kind of split a little bit there was a part of me in the race and then there was a part of me watching me in the race and kind of that fascination of watching me just completely disassemble during yeah. the race and, and seeing what that breakdown was like and just going wow you're hallucinating the daylights out of this you have no idea what's going on do you You're like no i have no idea just to watch yourself and kind yeah. of get that helicopter view of seeing how you how you went and, and I think it's also fascinating, the um, recovery, like watching that too. It's like, mm. isn't the human body amazing that it brings you back to, yeah. to the equilibrium again? You know, um, I think it's, uh, I think the human body is fascinating in that regard too. So it's just yeah. what you can do. Like, you know, you can, you can put it through all of that and you give yeah. it a week and it's like, okay, we can sleep again now. We've got the calories back in and the weight bounces back and you can kind of, you know, give yourself enough time and do it sensibly. Cool. Yeah. We're, we're good to go again. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what's next on your radar? Well, something like that was 2019, and so I had a bunch of stuff. I, I had some overseas stuff planned and all that kind of stuff, and then COVID hit, and then everything just goes out the window. And I'm like, okay, we're not leaving the country. Cool. I'll do local stuff. You know, I'll get back and you know, Buffalo Stampede, Surf Coast, all the good stuff. Cancelled, cancelled, delayed, cancelled, <laughs> and you know, you end up with credits for like 400 races. Oh, no. Yeah, like accommodations everywhere. You've got credits yeah. everywhere, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's been nice in the last 12 months or so to get back into just getting out and having events. Like, yeah. like yes, I won that race. But when you're in Australia, like you put me in Surf Coast or whatever, I'm middle of the pack. Like I'm not anywhere out the front in any other environment. Like for me, I know where I excel. Really, really long, really complex yeah. and difficult. The further it is, the better I am. But you're yeah. sitting in a 100K or 100 mile or something like that. I'll do it and I'll do okay, but I'll be middle of the pack and that's, that's fine yeah. by me. So it was nice to just get back into events again and those kind of things so um and now that the world's opening up again and people are start, race directors are back kind of tentatively having these big events again because people are starting to travel again as the doors open up we'll see what's out there but it's been one of those weird couple of years where you wanted to do it but you couldn't do it and then it was just what's available and i don't know we, we thread the needle as best we can at the moment yeah yeah now that's fair enough now um you've actually also written a book about this whole experience I did, yeah. People kept up. I didn't plan on doing it. People go, well, you're going to write this down. You should write it down. Like, you should put it together. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can, I can probably do that. And it was part therapy for me. It was nice to sit yeah. down and, and relive it. So the book is kind of two parts. Part is the my mountaineering background gives a, a little bit of background on that. And then the 2017 race and the 2019 race, and we tell those stories. But interwoven in that is what, what did I learn? Like, what do you take away? What happens when 
mountaineering expeditions go wrong or when you fail at a big race like that, you've built your whole thing around. What did I learn? What did I then apply in 2019? And then how did that pan out? And what were the tools and those kind of things? So it's a it's a part just adventure story, part stealth help kind of stuff. So for me, it was really enjoyable to just sit down and actually blurt it all out and relive it of what happened and where did I go and what decisions were made. And even to look back at the data and go, there are sections where you hallucinated so much. I have no idea what that 20 or 30 kilometres look like. I have no idea at all. Um, because when I look back at photos, it's not what I thought it was. I thought I was in a dense jungle. And it's like, no, it was just billy table flat white. There was nothing there. So it's nice to go back and look at the data and how long it took and what you did and kind of go from there. Did you find while you were doing the race that there are portions you don't remember at all? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were some really just bits where you just, or bits that you you kind of remember it, but it's through a lens, like a filter. Yeah. Like there was a section where I remember putting my bivy bag down towards the end one night and I was terrified that I was going to roll over and fall off a cliff. Like I thought I was in a jungle and I was on a cliff mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm a bivy bag. If I roll, I'm going to die. I'm like, and you look at the photo that I took and it's like literally you're on a billy table. Like there's nothing out. Like just mm-hmm. as far as you can see, it's dead flat white. There's nothing mm-hmm. there. But I was living in that hallucinatory world of, of what's going on. Um the one thing I did got really excited about is eventually you, you kind of reach a point where you start to fall asleep on your feet, which is okay. Mm-hmm. But I managed to actually, at one point, I looked at my watch and then realized I'd fell asleep. It was still moving. I looked at my watch and I actually made it a couple of kilometers. Like oh, just, wow. Just, awesome. Just, thankfully, it was a straight section and yeah. I managed to just kind of weave a little bit. And the medics used to laugh because they said we would follow athletes and we'd see their, their sled tracks in the snow. And they'd start straight and then they'd start to weave and then you'd see them veer right off and then there'd be like a person-sized hole in the snowbank where they just, and then woken up and clawed themselves out and then started off again. They thought it was hilarious. They loved it. Um, but, yeah, you just, there are sections where you just, you weren't even thinking about thinking. You were just autopilot. The lights were on. No one's home. And you just make progress. Eat, make progress, eat, make progress. And that's that was the total ability of your functions at that time yeah yeah i can i can only just imagine um that is epic so if people want to to buy your book and have a proper read of it where can they go to get that a couple of options everywhere anywhere good books are sold or average books or medium books or wherever you like so you can go to amazon or what have you um the audio version has just come up on audible so you can awesome. read, like me you're out in the trails and that's the only time you get to read grab it there are you um are you reading it on audible Yes, I read it myself, yeah, cool. which was kind of weird, locking yourself in a small room for yeah. like seven hours or eight hours and just talking to yourself. Um, it's it actually a lot like a race. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I actually self-edited the book as I went, like I'm reading it going, that sentence doesn't read right. And yeah, I would just read it differently to readjust yeah. it. When. So, yes, it's me reading the books. So you can get it on Audible, find it on Amazon or wherever you like, um, or on my webpage, paulwatkins.com.au. There's a book page there and you can grab a copy and I'll, I'll mail it myself to you. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes for your book. You. Um, so that'll be good. Um, and where can people follow you if they're interested in seeing what you're up to next? Yeah, look, you can find me on, uh, as you mentioned before, The Rogue Scholar on Instagram. I tend to be a little bit more lighthearted there, so it's more pictures of me doing stuff in places. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn under Paul Watkins on LinkedIn. I tend to be a little bit more serious there. So a lot of my writing, my blog pieces and those kind of things are up there or my website, um, which is a link to, that'll be awesome. Um, you'll yeah. find my blog page there. So I put up, I do a lot of writing and stuff and and, and pieces on there. So um, whatever your flavour, you'll find me out in the socials and those kind of things. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to, oh, to know about the race. That is just such yeah. an amazing story. And I'm, I'm jealous of you from the point of view of it sounds like an awesome adventure, but I wouldn't really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's because you're smart. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. No worries. Bye. 